What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today is Part 2 of Salem, Oregon's Michael Frankie case. So because this is part two and it takes place in the same city, (laughs) rather than do a today's destination, because you all heard it last week, I have no doubt, I'm going to actually tell you another story about Oregon. Yay. (laughs) Back in the day when I first got out of college, I worked for an Oregon congressman in Washington, D.C. As interns, we were required to do capital tours for any visiting constituents from our state. A friend in the office and I would always go work with the architect of the Capitol to try and find out information that would be interesting that people wouldn't otherwise know. So this is how we found out about Senator Edward Baker. Senator Baker became a U.S. senator from Oregon in 1860. This, of course, is right around the time of the Civil War. And when 1861 rolled around, he joined the war effort for the Union. Now, tragically, on October 21st, 1861, he was killed in the Battle of Ball's Bluff. He remains the only person to be a sitting U.S. senator when killed in combat. Now, Senator Baker was not from Oregon. He actually spent his growing up years in Illinois. So he was actually really close friends with our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Now, in 1864, so this is three years after Senator Baker died, legislation was introduced so that every state in the union would submit two statues to be displayed in U.S. Statuary Hall. Now, Statuary Hall is actually the old House of Representatives chambers that was used from 1801 to 1857. And the idea was the states could honor these great men, no, there weren't women at the time, who contributed to the building of our country. Now, as I mentioned, Senator Baker had not been a resident of Oregon that long. And of course, these statues were supposed to represent the founding fathers of the states. President Lincoln really wanted his friend to be commemorated in Statuary Hall. It was said that during Senator Baker's eulogy, the President Lincoln was crying so loudly that you couldn't hear what the person was saying. So rather than have Oregon submit Senator Baker as one of their statues, the U.S. House of Representatives passed an act of Congress allowing Senator Baker's statue to be added. So therefore, Oregon is the only state with three statues in Statuary Hall. So just a brief recap of part one. On January 17, 1989, Oregon Department of Corrections Director Michael Frankie was stabbed to death outside of the Dome Building, a historic structure on the grounds of the Oregon State Hospital that housed the Department of Corrections administrative staff. Michael was last seen alive at 6.45 p.m. near his office inside the Dome Building, and between 7.05 and 7.20 p.m., Several people saw his car door standing ajar in the circular driveway in front of the dome building. A security guard found Michael Frankie's body after midnight outside of the portico on the side of the building that was used for a staff entrance. Michael had died from a stab wound to the heart. It was clear he was trying to get back into the building by breaking the glass with his fist, but collapsed and died near the door. The murder weapon was never found, and the police had no other evidence that could be tied to a suspect. Marion County District Attorney Dale Penn suggested the murder was the result of a robbery gone bad or for revenge. However, as the months passed without a suspect, there were rumors around the state of Oregon that Michael's murder had something to do with his investigation into corruption within the Department of Corrections. These rumors were being echoed by Michael's brothers, Patrick and Kevin. Both brothers had been privy to conversations with Michael before he was killed that intimated that there were organized criminal elements within the system. We ended part one by telling you about a young woman waiting for an appointment in the Marion County District Attorney's Office on September 25, 1989. She heard loud voices and looked up to see Dale Penn, the district attorney himself, standing in a doorway with his back to her, talking to someone in the room. He said, it's out now. We have 24 hours to do damage control. 
DA Penn then noticed the woman and slammed the door shut. So what was DA Penn talking about? Columnist Phil Stanford with The Oregonian weighed in. The first that came to mind was Michael Frankie's murder. Now, Stanford pointed out that the next morning on page one of The Oregonian, there was a story that the state police were focusing on a former prison inmate named Frank Gable. Now, Kath, remember, at this point, no suspects had been named. And in fact, anybody investigators spoke with was labeled a witness. Mm -hmm. By late Thursday afternoon, this was when the woman overheard the district attorney talking about damage control, D.A. Penn would have known that the story was about to appear. This would have made the district attorney very unhappy because he was keeping the investigation very close to the vest, even to the point of criticism about his failure to share information. And Kath, this wasn't just from reporters. This criticism came from Michael Frankie's family as well. Exactly. So who was Frank Gable and who pointed detectives in his direction? 30-year-old Gable was a known methamphetamine user and dealer who had been in and out of the Oregon prison system for the past 10 years. Gable had been released from prison and placed on probation in August 1988 after serving four years for burglary. Prior to being released, Gable was enrolled in the Cornerstone Drug and Alcohol Treatment Program for inmates from August of 1987 to June of 1988, but he did not complete it. But importantly about this program is it is housed in the Oregon State Hospital, which, as Kathy mentioned, was located on the same grounds as the Dome Building. Most recently, state police had arrested Gable in May of 1989, so this is roughly four months after Michael Frankie's murder, for assaulting his wife Janine and violating his probation. At this point, he was still being held in the Coos County Jail. Frank Gable's name originally came up when Marion County detectives received a tip from an inmate. Approximately seven months after Michael Frankie's murder, Chris Kieran's brother Mike Kieran's came forward with a tip. Now, we discussed Chris Kieran's in part one because he was actually the very first witness interviewed by police. Chris was the guy who had been court ordered to attend the Cornerstone Drug Treatment Program that is at the Oregon State Hospital. But he left the program after Michael Frankie's murder and never returned. Now, not only was this a parole violation, but it also raised detectives' eyebrows. When Chris Kieran's was finally found and brought in for questioning, he told detectives that the only reason he did not return that night was because he was afraid they were going to pin the murder on him. Reporter Eric Mason of KOIN6 talked to Mike Kierens, who said he was a former cellmate of Gables. Mike Kierens let the reporter know that he told detectives that he and Frank Gable served time together and stayed in touch after their releases from prison. He said that after the news of Michael Frankie's murder broke, Gable told Karens that he was the one police were looking for. Gable said he had broken into Michael Frankie's car and Michael caught him. According to Karens, Gable said that Michael Frankie was attempting to restrain him in order to have him arrested, and Gable just didn't want to be arrested, so he stabbed him. Karens said he did not think that Gable killed him intentionally, but just rather reacted to what was happening. And Kath, now that Mike Kierens has spoken with detectives and they have a beat on Frank Gable, mm -hmm. they are now going around and trying to pull in his associates so that they can find out what else everybody else knows. Exactly. And keep in mind that Frank Gable was a meth dealer and user. Right. So his known associates had the same proclivities. Right. So now, as Oregonian columnist Phil Stanford suggested, the district attorney's secret grand jury proceedings were coming to light because word was filtering out through unnamed sources to journalists that this was happening. So, Kath, Phil Stanford was a stud. He was. Now, remember, this is back in 1989. So we're talking 33 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. I'll trust your mouth. <laughs> it will make me subtract. <laughs> See that you do. <laughs> but... His columns on this, and you know, Kath, because you read some of them as well, he clearly had inside sources. And not only that, but he was actually in direct touch with Michael Frankie's two brothers, Patrick and Kevin. Right. And his articles reflected that. Now, here's the other thing. We usually don't promote other people's podcasts on this podcast. <laughs> but here we go. Exactly. In 2020, Phil Stanford did a podcast called Murder in Oregon. His podcast, which I believe is an eight-part series, basically reiterates everything that he had reported on after Michael Frankie's death, then through the trial and conviction. Right. 
He was like a dog with a bone, this guy. And Kath and I did not listen to the podcast because we were afraid that we would basically <laughs> take all of his hard work and regurgitate it. <laughs> like, according to Phil Stanford, according to Phil exactly. Stanford, we still do that quite a bit. Right. But we never listen to the podcast. Exactly. It's based on his news reporting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It was reported that a woman who worked part-time in the dome building named Jody Swearington testified before the grand jury that she saw Gable attack Michael Frankie, as did her boyfriend, an ex-convict named Cappy Harden. <laughs> now, Cappy's laughing because you would think Cappy's a nickname. Right. It's not. Yeah, Cappy's his real name. His nickname is Shorty. Exactly. <laughs> Cappy Harden sounds like a, why my name's Cappy Harden, I'm a gumshoe detective. Like, it just <laughs> seems like... like a 1950s, totally. like, radio show. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Anyway, so, Cappy and Jody testified at the grand jury proceedings, and again, these are secret proceedings, that they saw Gable attack Michael Frankie. Another person who testified before the grand jury talked to KOIN6 reporter Eric Mason under the condition that his identity would be protected. And as Kathy said, it's because it's not allowed for you to speak exactly. about grand jury proceedings. You're supposed to shut your mouth. The unnamed person claimed he heard Gable bragging about killing Frankie as retribution for slowing the drug trade inside the walls of the state prison system. As you guys remember from part one, Michael Frankie was in the process of investigating systemic corruption within the Oregon Department of Corrections. So this unnamed individual who was speaking with the reporter also told the reporter that on the day that Frankie's body was found, Gable had told this associate he screwed up big time. When this unnamed individual asked Gable what he meant, Gable responded that everybody would be reading about it in the paper. And 30 minutes later, this unnamed individual said he heard about Michael Frankie's death on the news. As prosecutors began building their case against Gable, KOIN6 and other media outlets began reporting that sources close to the investigation confirmed that Gable's apartment and his mother-in-law's house had been searched by police. However, according to reporter Eric Mason, detectives were struggling to find physical evidence connecting Gable to Michael Frankie's murder or connecting him to the dome building. The murder weapon was never found. Journalist Jim Redden with the Portland Tribune reported that there was no physical evidence against Frank Gable. And in fact, at this point, it was reported that detectives had not uncovered any physical evidence that connected anyone to the murder. But as detectives narrowed in on Frank Gable, others were not convinced that police were looking in the right direction, which was a car burglary gone terribly wrong and instead believed the circumstances surrounding Michael Frankie's death were far more nefarious than the official story. However, as the investigation closed in on Frank Gable as the primary suspect in the murder, another investigation revealed deeper depths of corruption within the state's Department of Corrections, corruption that Michael Frankie had been tasked to clean up before his untimely death. Eight months after Michael Frankie's murder, so in September of 1989, then-Governor Neil Goldschmidt announced the appointment of a special investigator into possible corruption in the state prison system. He appointed retired Judge John C. Warden. This investigation was designed to complete the work that Michael Frankie had been doing before his murder. So if you recall from Part 1, there was an investigation in 1986 Michael Frankie came to the office mid-1987. So there were people who had been prosecuted for prison corruption. However, Michael was interested in doing a deeper dive. Well, he had shared with his brothers that he actually believed that there was something bigger going on and had talked about needing to move certain prison officials out of their positions so that he could bring in people he trusted to be at his side as he did his investigation. Right. Basically, Michael Frankie wasn't done. Oh, right. And in fact, he was taking a different avenue than the 1986 investigation and really believed he had more to uncover. And he was looking at higher ups. He wasn't just looking at prison guards. So what I found kind of humorous is that the judge was Judge Warden, <laughs> who was investigating the Department of Corruptions. Perfect. You just called it the Department of Corruptions. <laughs> wow, that was a Freudian slip. The Department of Corrections. Yeah, you know, Governor Goldschmidt was like, oh, my God, Judge Warden, we got to get this guy. Exactly. He's our man. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So anyway, so December 14th, 1989, just one month before the first anniversary of Michael Frankie's murder, Judge John Warden's report on his investigation into the corruption was released. 
Now, this was because he was only given 90 days. Oh, seriously? Yeah. So when Governor Goldschmidt started this in mid-September, part of this investigation was get this investigated and get a report on my desk no later than December 15th. That is not a lot of time. So Judge Warden creates what is called the Warden Report. Of course. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I want to name stuff after me, too. (laughs) And it detailed that as many as 15 prison officials might have been involved in wrongdoing or significant illegal activities. Which 90 days is not enough time for somebody who is a retired judge, no subpoena power. Right. To get any sort of deep dive into this. Yeah. That's what podcasters are for. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And you're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) The laundry list of bad behavior by prison workers included planting contraband to entrap inmates, drugs and alcohol provided to inmates, and prison officials stealing money from inmates, among other things. The names of the corrupt prison officials were not included in the report. Their positions ranged from high-ranking security officers within the individual prisons to those within the Department of Corrections offices at the Dome Building. So journalist Jim Redden with the Portland Tribune said at the time that the names were never released because it was a quote-unquote personnel matter. Oh, hiding behind that. Exactly. As a result, there was no way of knowing if any of the people involved in the corruption were ever disciplined or not. Now, Kath, I think you looked for it. I know I looked for it to see if after all these years, maybe it had been released. Well, I didn't look because I knew you were looking. (laughs) (laughs) Lazy. Exactly. (laughs) But I was never able to find it. I would be shocked if they were released. But now, once you claim personnel issue, exactly, you're protected by a gazillion laws, or you're protected by some 79 year old HR lady wagging her finger at you, telling you can't tell anybody that. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to reporters following the release of this report, Judge Warden explained that he was not surprised with the results, but he was disappointed in the discovery of the systemic harassment of employees who tried to report wrongdoing by their fellow employees. He told KOIN6's Eric Mason, quote, I was troubled by it, particularly within some of the prison institutions. The almost siege mentality that the corrections officers in these institutions had, where if there was something that didn't look quite right, the aim was to get it covered up, end quote. And honest to God, I could see a siege mentality in a prison. Now, ultimately, Judge Warden was not able to establish a link between any illegal activity or wrongdoing within the prison system and the murder of the former prison chief, Michael Frankie. Judge Warden told reporter Mason that they had lots of rumors and lots of people who were making scenarios, but they found no solid evidence. None. Michael Frankie's younger brother, Kevin, said he never believed that Judge Warden's investigation would produce any real results, and the release of the Warden report did little to change that feeling. He said his family remained steadfast in their belief that Michael was murdered because he had uncovered corruption within the state's prison system and was preparing to go public with it. So here we are with the district attorney who has not only heard from Mike Kieran's that Frank Gable confessed to him when they rounded up all of these known associates of Gable's and heard similar stories. Marion County prosecutors believed they had their killer. Frank Gable was indicted by the grand jury for aggravated murder and first-degree murder on April 6, 1990, and pleaded not guilty at his subsequent arraignment. KOIN 6 reporter Melissa Mills was one of the first people to sit down and talk with Gable after his arrest. From the outset of their conversation, Gable insisted he did not kill Michael Frankie. Gable said that if he went down on the case, then the state had a big problem because it meant that they still had a killer running around. He told reporter Mills that the reason ex-cons and members of the Salem drug world were pointing the finger at him was due to his work as an undercover informant. Gable said that was the type of people drug users are. They don't care if they sell their own mom out to get out of jail or to get their next fix. They just want out of jail. They don't care. They could care less about me or you or anybody else, and that's why I started working for the police. Now, there were rumors that Gable was an informant, which caused people to snitch on him. However, journalist Mills noted that no state agency or department ever confirmed that Gable was an informant or working undercover. A few weeks before trial started in March 1991, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode about Michael Frankie's murder. It was called An Unexplained Death 
even though a Salem drug dealer faces the death penalty for the murder in a trial that begins in two weeks. According to Oregonian columnist Phil Stanford, it was the Frankie family that had reached out to Unsolved Mysteries and suggested the topic for the show. Marion County District Attorney Dale Penn said it was irresponsible for NBC to air a show two weeks before the jury in the case was to be selected. Penn also said he believed the program was based on rumor, speculation, and had no basis in fact. And prosecutors were afraid that publicity this close to trial could taint the prospective jury pool. The show floated the scenario that Michael Frankie was abducted by a group of men interrogated off the premises and brought back to his office building where he was killed just outside on the steps of the staff entrance. Now, Kath, this is something that was repeatedly brought up by Michael Frankie's family. Now, the family had theorized that even though Michael Frankie's car was located in the front of the dome building where Mm -hmm. the circular drive was, as you mentioned, where he was found, if you're facing the building, was on the right side around the corner. And then there were steps leading up to a staff entrance. So the question was, if he was there, how did he get there? If he was at the staff entrance, you're saying? Correct. So the theory that was floating around, and Unsolved Mysteries didn't go this deep into it, but these were other rumors kind of circulating across the state and his family. But it was that he was removed from the premises because they wanted to find out information from him on what the investigation was about, who was he targeting, what kind of documents did he have that backed him up or laid a trail to what he was doing. And so the theory was, is that after they abducted him, they brought him back to the building so that they could go into his office and get any of these files that would incriminate them, their cohorts, anything like that. So the family thinks that he was able to get away and ran and was trying to get in the staff entrance. And that's where they caught up with him. This is very interesting because in part one, I asked you about a blood trail. Correct. And we talked about like I hadn't read anything and you hadn't read anything. And of course, since that time, I had to, of course, do a big deep dive into it. You went down the vortex. (laughs) I I went down the rabbit hole. There you go. That's what you did. I was able to find crime scene photos, which I had not found initially. And the photo that had him lying on the ground in front of the staff entrance door, I discovered that there was no blood trail within 100 feet of Michael Frankie's car. Which is incredible. And he was stabbed in the heart, which was the fatal blow, but he was also stabbed two other times. So if you're running, you are leaving a blood trail behind you. And the only blood they found was on the steps to the portico. The prosecution was saying he was stabbed at his car. Whoever stabbed him ran away. And so Michael tried to get into an entrance. Right. And if that's the case, and it was 40 feet away or so from his car, then why on earth would he not have been leaving a blood trail the whole time? Kath, one final fact that seemed to support a cover-up theory was that no paperwork, none, involving Michael's prison investigation was ever found. According to Unsolved Mysteries, several witnesses recalled seeing around 23 bags of shredded papers being removed from Michael Frankie's office after his death. Which may or may not have been nefarious. I know, but you know what drives me crazy? It's like you have something like that that I consider to be a rather big fact, but it's not fleshed out further. More than two years after Michael Frankie's murder on May 1st, 1991, trial began a jury of nine women and three men would decide Frank Gable's fate. The state of Oregon's theory was that around 7 p.m. on the night of the murder, Michael was leaving work when he caught Frank Gable trying to steal snitch papers out of his car. I have no idea what snitch papers are. Yeah, I don't either. Okay. That's what it said in the records. And it was actually in the court record. It was a quote around snitch papers. Right. So it has to mean something. (laughs) Well, gee, thanks. Can you also explain the theory of relativity while you're at it? Okay, now that I can't explain. (laughs) So again, the state is theorizing that Gable stabbed Michael three times as he fled on foot before driving away. Meanwhile, Michael staggered to the staff entrance where he bled out. The state suggested Michael died 15 or 20 minutes after the stabbing by 7.15 or 7.20 p.m., This is when co-workers saw his car door open but could not find him. According to court records, the evidence showed that the assailant had thrust a knife at Frankie three times. One knife thrust missed Frankie but slashed his overcoat. A second knife thrust passed through Frankie's left bicep as he held his arm tightly to his chest and then slightly perforated Frankie's chest after passing through business cards that were in his front left shirt pocket. 
Now, the third knife thrust, which proved to be the fatal blow, entered the left side of Michael Frankie's chest and passed through his heart from left to right at a downward angle. Frankie also had irregular jagged tears to the skin on his right hand, consistent with punching through the glass pane of the staff entrance door at the dome building. Present around the area of Michael Frankie's left eye were a series of three abrasions or scrapes and a contusion on the orbital rim. Also present were two small abrasions or scrapes on his left forehead. The crime scene itself provided no clues to the identity of the murderer. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. According to court records, the prosecution relied solely on witness testimony, circumstantial evidence, and Frank Gable's own statements to the police, as well as the testimony of several of his acquaintances. Wayne Hunsaker, a custodian at the Oregon State Hospital, told the police that around 7 p.m. he saw two men in what appeared to be an altercation, but he could not identify either one. Hunsaker testified that he heard a grunt like somebody had their breath knocked out and saw two men facing each other in the parking circle in front of the dome building. One man matching Michael Frankie's description headed quickly towards the building while the other man, approximately six feet tall, 175 pounds, age 20 to 40, short brown or black hair, wearing a tan trench coat, ran west down the driveway across the street and behind a generator at the hospital. Hunsucker saw no other people or cars. Every witness who incriminated Frank Gable knew him through Salem's drug subculture. As we said earlier, he was a meth user and a dealer, as were most of the state's witnesses. Interestingly, Michael Kierens, who was the first witness to directly implicate Frank Gable and who testified before the grand jury, was removed from the district attorney's witness list before trial. At trial, the only direct eyewitness against Frank Gable was Cappy Harden. He was the one who testified that he saw Gable stab Michael Frankie when Cappy Harden was at the dome building picking up his girlfriend, Jody Swearington. Five other witnesses claimed Gable made incriminating statements to them, and Kath, all of these five witnesses, were given polygraphs over the course of several months by the detectives who were investigating the case. One of the witnesses testified that he saw Gable driving near the murder scene and that Gable admitted to stabbing Michael Frankie while they were doing meth together. Another witness testified that Gable asked him to dispose of a bag of clothes on the night of the murder. A third witness claimed Gable confessed the next day during a drug sale, and yet another witness said Gable confessed while high a few months later. Gable's then-wife, Janine, testified that she was at home alone with her daughter the night of Frankie's murder while Gable stayed out with the car. Now, it's interesting, Kath, at the trial, the prosecutor used Janine to suggest that Gable was a violent man because obviously the two of them had history and he was abusive to her. Janine testified that twice he had broken her arm and cut her with a broken plate. So basically, prosecutors were painting a picture of, hey, this is a guy who is not above violence. Right. He's clearly capable right, of and, it. And using weapons. Right. And they tried to use his propensity for violence to say, look, this is the kind of guy that would have been carrying a knife. And, you know, we didn't find the murder weapon, but he probably had one and got rid of it. Right. Ditched it on his run. Right. 
So then they bring Janine's mother to the stand. Who had to have hated him almost as much as her daughter. Probably. And the prosecutor shows Janine's mom a knife like the one he believed Gable had used in the stabbing. Okay. So based on nothing other than probably the autopsy that said it was this deep or the blade was like this? Exactly. Okay. And Gable's mother-in-law was like, oh yeah, I had a knife similar to that in my house. And come to think of it, it vanished shortly before Michael Frankie was murdered. Law enforcement officers testified as to what Frank Gable said to them during numerous police interviews. The police began talking to Gable in September of 1989, so this was eight months after Michael Frankie's death, and by this time Gable claimed that his memory of dates was fuzzy from his heavy drug use. My memory would have been fuzzy regardless of my heavy drug use. <laughs> like, honestly, eight months is a long time. I like that you said of my heavy drug exactly. use. Exactly. <laughs> Kathy, eight minutes is a long time for you. It is. I, yesterday. Yesterday is a long time ago. Gable told detectives that he was never certain of his whereabouts that night, but he believed he was home with his wife hosting a party. When pressed for another alibi, Gable said he could have been out with a friend doing or selling drugs. That's a great alibi. (laughs) I was out doing something illegal. Let's call my drug dealing friends. I'm sure they'll come in and help me out. The truth. The most incriminating statements he made to police were in response to the following questions. Question. Well, Frank, did you tell anybody that you killed Michael Frankie? Answer. I don't think I ever told anybody I killed Frankie. Question. What are some possible locations where the knife that killed Michael Frankie can be found? Answer. Whenever you ask me a question about this, my mind keeps saying, you did it, you did it, you did it. And all of the time, I know I did not. Question. You mean that part of you is saying you did it? You killed Michael Frankie? Then the other part of you is saying you did not? Answer. Yeah, it's like the back part of my brain says I did it and the front part of my brain says I didn't do it. Question. If you did not do it, don't you think you would remember? Answer. It doesn't matter if I say yes, I did it or no, I didn't. They're going to fry me for this. Question. Do you think the state has enough evidence to charge you? Answer. Yeah, they probably do. It doesn't matter. I will stick to this story until the end. I just know you want me to make a great big hero out of you, but I just can't. I don't think they have anything. Then Gable said, yeah, but I'm not saying I did it. I'll go to the end of the trial saying that. There are only two people who know who killed Frankie. Frankie and God. The detective reminded Gable that Frankie was dead. And Gable said, well, there are only two people who know Frankie. Yeah, me and God. I'm going to go to the end of the trial saying I didn't do this. I'll be talking to God all the way. I'll go to the heaven saying it, and all those mother effers will go to hell for lying. At trial, the defense was delivered a blow when the court would not allow them to present evidence that a third party was guilty of murdering Michael Frankie. That other person was Johnny Krause. Now, Kath, remember from episode one, Johnny Krause had been on parole and the police were trying Mm -hmm. to round up all parolees so that they could give them polygraph tests and talk to them about who might have murdered Michael Frankie. Well, Johnny C., as I like to call him, he never came in for an interview like he was supposed to. And he was released from prison only one month before Michael Frankie was killed. Correct. Now, the problem was, is that even though he was on parole, he assaulted somebody in the street and they picked him up brought him in because he had violated his parole, and that's how the police got a hold of him. Exactly. So when they get a hold of him, they question him about his whereabouts on the night of the murder, and they ask him to take a polygraph test. He then confesses to Michael Frankie's murder. Then he recants. And he did this back and forth with Detectives Kath several times. Ultimately, when detectives reviewed everything, they figured he just was unreliable. didn't pursue prosecution against him. However, at trial, the defense believed that Krauss was a viable candidate to be the actual murderer, and they wanted to bring his statements to the police up in front of the jury to provide evidence that officers had arrested the wrong person. And they wanted to do this, Kath, by way of the detective's testimony. Isn't it true that this guy came in? Isn't it true that? Isn't it true that? And the court was like, nope, can't do it. So at trial, remember Cappy Harden's girlfriend, Jody Swearington, she initially testified at the grand jury proceedings that she and her boyfriend, Cappy, saw Gable kill Frankie in the parking lot. She recanted prior to trial and is actually testifying at trial as a defense witness. And she basically said, hey, look, I lied and Harden lied. We were not eyewitnesses to this murder. But the DA then impeached her with her own grand jury testimony, which, of course, was under oath and which corroborated Cappy Harden's story. 
So now the DA is using her testimony to reinforce their case, basically saying you testified truthfully at the grand jury, but now you're having second thoughts. And so you're lying on his behalf. And she was like, no, 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 no. So when Jody is testifying for the defense, she basically says, look, I was pressured to lie by the police. So I lied to the grand jury. Now, the defense also calls, as one of their witnesses, Gable's landlady at the time. Remember, one of the things he told detectives was that he thought he was hosting a party. So the landlady testifies that, in fact, the Gables did host a loud party on the night of Michael Frankie's murder. She recalls this specifically because the party was so loud that she served them with an eviction notice the following day. Yeah, Kath, I had a question. So. Yeah. For the prosecution, Gable's ex-wife Janine testified that Michael was not home on the night of the murder. He was out with the car while she stayed home with her daughter. Right. Did the defense bring it up that the landlady's testimony kind of impeached Janine Gable's testimony? My understanding is that the defense raised it in argument, but they did not impeach Janine's testimony with the landlady's testimony. Rather, the defense simply brought the landlady to the stand and let her testimony speak for itself. Hoping that the jury would put two and two together and realize that it was likely Janine Gable who was lying. Right. Or misremembering because it was a long time prior. The defense counsel also questioned police officers about coercive tactics with witnesses and attacked the state's timeline. They tried to impeach the state's witnesses as criminals, drug dealers, and addicts. They weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. However, the defense tactics were unsuccessful because on June 27, 1991, the jury found Frank Gable guilty on six counts of aggravated murder and one count of first-degree murder. The court sentenced Gable to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Kathy, one other thing to add about this is that on the day that Frank Gable was sentenced, mm -hmm. he actually got married to a defense attorney he had when he was arrested for domestic violence against his wife. So wait, the gal who represented him on that domestic violence charge married him? On the day he sentenced to life with no parole. Oh my God, I didn't <laughs> know that. <Yeah. laughs> oh my God. Over the course of the next 15 years or so, Frank Gable filed multiple appeals in Oregon state courts. His first appeal focused on statements that he claimed violated his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Before trial began in May 1991, Gable's attorney filed a motion to suppress statements he made to detectives between November 3, 1989 and his arraignment on April 9, 1990. His attorney contended that Gable had invoked his right to counsel on November 3rd, 1989, so every statement after that should be precluded at trial. That is called the fruit of the poisonous tree. Is that a Bible reference? It's, it's, it's <laughs> you know what? It probably is actually, but you learn or, it. Or Snow White. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like any time police officers do something that is illegal, all of the fruits of their labor are considered tainted. So any evidence they may gather, any confession they may get. Correct. And it's brutal. Let's pretend you get a search warrant without actual probable cause. The probable cause is challenged and the search warrant warrants the gun. The gun is excluded from evidence. Like it's... It's in place for a reason. Correct. So on November 3rd of 1989, Frank Gable was in the Coos County Jail on an unrelated charge. That would be his DV charge. That is. Yeah. He contacted the police and asked to speak with Detectives Bain and Ackham. Both detectives went to the jail, making it clear they were there because he summoned them. The conversation was recorded and detectives gave a general Miranda-style warning, which Gable appeared to understand. Frank Gable told detectives that he read in the paper that he had confessed to an inmate about Michael Frankie's murder and he wanted to let them know it was a lie and he wanted to help with the investigation. The conversation then turned accusatory with at least one of the detectives saying that Gable did it and probably wanted to confess. At some point, Gable said, we can end the conversation here and get us an attorney and you can flip onto accusing me. I'm going to ask for an attorney. But the conversation continued. Now, ultimately, the appellate court found that Gable did not invoke his right to counsel or his right to remain silent. Rather, the court found the statement was a warning that if they accused him, he would stop speaking. Exactly, Kath. Like there's case law that basically says if somebody is making an equivocal statement without a clear intention of needing an attorney, then they have not actually invoked their right to counsel. 
He didn't say, I want an attorney. He said, hey, play nice or I'm going to get one. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, they pointed to a time when he invoked his Fifth Amendment in his domestic violence case. Real briefly, there were other appellate issues in state court that were equally unsuccessful for him, primarily focused on his allegation of inadequate counsel. He basically was saying, my attorneys failed to advise me about the investigation, the facts behind it. They failed to provide an alibi witness for me. Like, I said I wasn't there. How come you didn't scare up people who said they were at a party with me? That kind of thing. Anyway, the bottom line is these allegations of ineffective counsel fell on deaf ears and his state appeals were unsuccessful. Sometime around 1998, Frank Gable reached out to the Federal Public Defender's Office and asked them to investigate his case. Assistant Federal Public Defender Nell Brown agreed to look into the matter, and she and an investigator thoroughly reviewed the case file and interview witnesses over the course of many years. She did, and she also had a gentleman, I want to say his name was Mark Allemeyer, who was also a Federal Public Defender. He assisted her in this process. So I just wanted to give him some credit because you apparently were just going to walk right over him. Hey, it's all about the females. (laughs) Girl power, (laughs) sisters before business. Oh, my God. (laughs) Thank you for alienating any male out there who might be listening. Okay, the two of them are fine. (laughs) (laughs) And we know who they are, Kevin and Pat. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, James does too. (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. And Frank, you forgot your brother. Okay, I have four. We have four. Thank you. (laughs) But you guys know we talk like this, so you're fine. Right, You just rolled your eyes and ignored us. (laughs) Exactly. We offend all the time anyway, so you know that. (laughs) Now, in 2014, so this is six years after Frank Gable had first contacted Nell Brown, and this was also the year after Gable's state-level appeals had run out, Brown filed an appeal addressing 20 constitutional issues and later amended the appeal to include a claim of actual innocence. Now, this is interesting. According to one of the Court of Appeals opinions, Gable had actually waived 19 of those arguments because he did not preserve them by objecting to them in state court or appealing the issue in state court. However, when she amended to include an allegation of actual innocence, that concept is interpreted in different cases to suggest that if somebody brings evidence, and it's a high standard, I want to say it's clear and convincing evidence, that they are actually innocent, that a court can look at the waived arguments because justice ultimately should prevail. If somebody succeeds in providing evidence at this very high burden, we should look at the case in its totality. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. So in April 2019, fortunes finally changed for Frank Gable and his defense team. U.S. Magistrate John Acosta issued an opinion on Gable's federal appeal. He held that the trial court erred in not allowing the defense to admit evidence of Johnny Krause's guilt. The evidence showed Krause previously confessed to the crime four separate times on four different days during a two-week period. He gave additional details about the stabbing and the aftermath. In particular, when asked where Michael Frankie was stabbed, Krauss said, in the heart. Krauss also said that he stabbed Michael Frankie at least twice and thought he had cut Michael's arm once. And Kat, this was spot on, according to the autopsy report. The appellate court also pointed out that in the nearly 30 years since the trial, all key witnesses who incriminated Frank Gable recanted. Three of the witnesses recanted before trial, and the other recantations took place from 1993 to 2015. One of these was Mike Kieran's. Now remember, this is the individual who first pointed the finger at Frank Gable. And this was the guy who was taken off the prosecution's witness list at the last minute. Right, and it turns out it's because he recanted before trial even started. Exactly. Now, all of the witnesses told a similar story about how they came to testify against Frank Gable. In his appeal, Gable presented the opinion of David C. Raskin, Ph.D., an expert in experimental psychology and human psychophysiology who researches and trains law enforcement officers on polygraph techniques. Dr. Raskin explained how the techniques used in the Gable case suggest that the police were using polygraphs as a psychological club in order to elicit statements from witnesses. For example, Jody Swearington who was interviewed 12 times, was administered 23 polygraphs on seven different days. That's freaking crazy. I know. So they would do multiple polygraphs in a day and they would be like, no, sorry, we know that you're lying. Your poly says you're lying. We're going to do this again. Dr. Raskin attested that he had never seen this many tests 
administered to one person in the 43 years he had been working in this field. He described similar flaws in the polygraph exams of the other witnesses, and he concluded that the polygraph testing procedures the investigators used were fundamentally and seriously flawed. All the recanting witnesses were polygraphed multiple times. During these sessions, as I said a moment ago, the investigators would confront the witnesses with their purported results in real time, accuse them of lying when they were actually being truthful, and then suggesting the desired responses. The officers fed information and polygraphed them again till their stories were deemed truthful. The coercive effect of these procedures were exacerbated by abusive and frightening interrogation techniques. Now, this is according to Dr. Raskin. He said there were threats of prosecution in prison, which, of course, were very real for these witnesses. Right. Threats concerning the witnesses' children and families. Low blow. Totally. Or promises of rewards. And remember, Kathy, Mike Kierens, he was the first person who pointed the finger at Gable. Well, exactly. And the reason he did it is that he was in prison in Idaho and he wanted to have a transfer to an Oregon prison, which he was granted. Exactly. So the Court of Appeal noted that every recanting witness negotiated benefits in their own criminal cases in exchange for their statements against Gable. And several other witnesses were told that they were the murder suspects. And so then what the police told them was that Frank Gable told detectives that they were the ones who did the crime. So they were saying Frank Gable snitched on you and he said you did the crime. And so they were like, oh, oh no, 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 wait, he Frank did, did the it. crime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The court also pointed out that none of the witnesses had an obvious reason to perjure themselves on Gable's behalf now that they were recanting. In other words, there was no motivation to come forward and recant, but every motivation to lie initially. So, Kath, what's interesting is that these allegations were viewed by the court as significant allegations of misconduct to the point that it was actually put in the court opinion twice. Yes, it was. And the court made sure to point out both times that the prosecutors did not dispute or attempt to defend the tactics used by investigators in this case. Exactly. So although the defense put forth evidence trying to prove actual innocence, Judge Acosta did not determine that Frank Gable was, in fact, innocent. He basically said the defense put forth a, quote unquote, colorable claim of actual innocence. And he then ordered the state of Oregon to either retry or release Gable within 90 days. He called the conviction legally flawed, reversed it, and gave the state 30 days to respond to his ruling. So that was an insane victory. Now, after Judge Acosta's ruling, the state filed yet another appeal asking that Gable be returned to jail in Oregon as he awaited a retrial. It was reported by Maxine Bernstein in The Oregonian that the state soon changed its mind and agreed to release Frank Gable under federal supervision and with certain conditions while it appealed the judge's ruling ordering a retrial. On June 28, 2019, Frank Gable walked out of prison for the first time in nearly three decades. Gable, who had previously changed his name to Frank Different Cloud to honor his Native American roots, was now allowed to live with his wife of several years, Rainy Storm. So this is a different wife, not the attorney wife. Correct. Rainy Storm had actually been a pen pal of Frank Gable's for several years in prison. Remember, so, this so is he 28 is... years after he married the defense attorney back in Oregon. Do we know when he divorced the defense attorney? We do not. Okay. He was also in regular contact with his sister and her husband, who lived nearby. More than three years later, on September 29th, 2022, so really just a couple of weeks ago, right? the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth District affirmed Judge Acosta's 2019 ruling that Frank Gable's due process rights were violated when the trial court failed to allow him to bring up evidence of Johnny Krause's potential guilt. Yeah, so Kath, that was the primary reason Judge Acosta overturned the conviction. This trial judge who originally had the case should have allowed evidence of Johnny Krause's guilt. So now Gable's conviction is vacated, but the courts have not technically found him innocent, leaving the door open to a potential retrial or an appeal by the state of Oregon to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the next few months will determine whether there will be further legal action against Frank Gable or whether he will remain a free man. And we'll keep you posted on social media. Exactly. It's significant to note 
that both of Michael Frankie's brothers, Patrick and Kevin, have strongly believed in Frank Gable's innocence and are happy that he is currently enjoying his freedom. In 2019, when Gable was first released, the brothers started a GoFundMe campaign. Kevin Frankie said on the page, quote, The transition to civilian life is not going to be easy. Such an understatement. It will be a grueling fight battling PTSD, physical issues from 30 years of doing hard time, the terror of instant poverty and great need, feelings of hopelessness and powerless to switch off the constant fear that has been following you every hour of every day for three decades. When my brother was killed, we set up a reward fund seeded by family, friends, and total strangers from dozens of states across the land. That $30,000 was never enough to expose the true murderer's identity and was later donated to charity. Today, I am returning to that wellspring of love, humanity, and generosity and asking again in my and my family's name for your much-needed help and compassion in seeing that one thing that Frank and his wife, Rain, will not have to worry about immediately is having enough funds at hand to set up a home together and build the foundation of the hopes and dreams of a future together. Mike Frankie's legacy should not be that an innocent man's life was tossed onto the trash pile of incarceration, then left to rot outside the walls, forgotten and abandoned, end quote. The goal set on the page was for $60,000, To date, so as of October 2022, the total raised is just over $22,000. Michael Frankie was an honorable public servant who crusaded for justice. He demanded excellence and honesty from all those tasked with overseeing Oregon's prison inmates. As a stark reminder of the ultimate sacrifice Michael paid in the performance of his duties, a memorial plaque stands in front of the dome building, which sits on the grounds of the Oregon State Hospital. It reads, in memory of Oregon Department of Corrections Director Michael Frankie. End of watch, January 17, 1989. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you so much for the positive reviews on Apple. We really appreciate it. We do, and we appreciate you putting up with a two-part story, because those are never fun to wait for. (laughs) That is true. That is very true. And thanks so much for those who download, because that's how the success of our podcast is actually measured. And we also want to thank those of you who have reached out lately with episode ideas. Please keep them coming. Yes, definitely. We actually research each suggestion and we pick those that we can do. And if you're not following us on social media, please do so. You can find us at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook.